Scofflaws is a show about the history of crime, criminals, and the investigation thereof. There may be discussion of adult themes and generally icky stuff. Also, neither host is a legal professional, and this show does not contain any legal advice. Remember, crime doesn't pay. Unless you're really good at it. Hello, and welcome to the Scofflaws, a history of law and disorder. My name is Sean, and join me once again, finally, is my lovely co-host, Kate. Say hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. I'm super excited. All right, so you had some adventures. I did. I was halfway across the country. You want to tell our audience what sort of adventures you've been having? Uh, well, I was uh, working at the Carolina Renaissance Festival in Charlotte. How'd that go? And uh, it went it went well. It went really well. Um, I had a lot of fun, uh, but I um glad it's not my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Didn't I remember you posting like a few weeks ago that you had like the coldest fair day you've ever had? Oh my god, it was like 40 degrees. It was the worst. I was bundled in every single fair-ish appropriate layer I owned, and I was still cold. And I hold candles. Like, at the fair, I held candles. And I just was cold. That's such a 180 from our normal experience at a Renaissance fair where we're working it in, like, July and August. And it's like 100 degrees in the shade. Well, and that's how it was the first, like, three weeks. It was deadly and reminded me of Bristol, and I was happy. And then it was like, oh, I need to start wearing long sleeve garb now. Oh, I need to start wearing every single sweater. <laughs> and then if I, if I remember looking at the pictures correctly, wasn't Ian also performing some bit shirtless? Yes. Oh. Uh, so... My partner Ian does the Renaissance Men with um, our friend Grayson, and part of their performance is to fight shirtless. Uh, Imagine that in 45 degree weather. Uh, you know, I, I really don't have <laughs> to. Apparently, it's not that bad. I really don't have to imagine it that hard because in the morning when I get up and I take my shower, I can't really get dressed right away because the second I walk back into my room, my dog starts barking like mad. So usually I have to wait until, like, around noon before I can actually, like, put a shirt on for the day. Dear God. Yeah. Dear dog. Oh, I love her, but she is a loud, yappy thing. Yes, but she's cute. She's a cute, loud, yappy thing. I also have a loud, yappy thing who is cute. (laughs) So we're doing a morning recording here, and those always lead to something wacky happening. So I'm going to paint you, and I'm going to paint our audience a little picture of how my morning went. Oh, goodness. Woke up to my alarm saying, get ready to record. Grab my laptop, come downstairs, get coffee going. While the coffee's brewing, I take my cup and I pour my cream and sugar in it because I do that first. Don't judge me. I don't judge you. I agree with you. <laughs> uh, while, that's go- uh, while I'm waiting for the coffee to brew, I let the dog out. I grab my headphones and the splitter cable I have for my laptop. 
I come back into the kitchen, grab my coffee cup, and take a big swig of nothing but cream and sugar. <laughs> yeah, it tasted like I just went down the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. That's worse hearing you say that out loud. Uh, what did you do, Ray? <laughs> oh, dear God. Oh, dear right. God. So what are we talking about today other than me giving head to a fictional character? Well, not as interesting. Uh, we are talking about one of the most famous murder cases um, in the city of Chicago. Right on. And which one would that be? It's the Leopold and Leb um, perfect crime is what it's often referred to. Um, so there were these two guys, uh, Nathan Leopold and Richard Leb, Leb, and they were from um, an elite Jewish town, or not town, uh, neighborhood on the south side. And Burrow. yeah, kind yeah, it's a neighborhood thing. Yeah, I just my brain blanked. Um, <laughs> but they were both really accelerated students. And, um, they both graduated high school by the age of 14 and 15. Wow. Yeah. Um, and they went to university in Chicago. Leopold did incredibly well. Leb did not so much. Um, Leb ended up transferring to U of M and, uh, went there and, basically spent more time reading dime novels than actually in class. But these two reconnected uh, when they were 18, uh, 18 and 19 respectively. And um, they became fast friends. And then they found out that even though they were, they had nothing really in common, they both kind of just fell in love with each other. Uh, which 1924, just this is in the 19 early 1920s, so this was not common at all. Uh, well, it was common, but less public. Hello, I'm Hannibal Lecter, and this is my lover, Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> not as bad as Hannibal Lecter, but yes. Um, so in the winter of 1923-1924, after coming back from yet another failed uh, burglary, they decided that they wanted to commit the perfect crime to prove their intellectual superiority to everyone. So wait, hold on. So they, they had a string of failed robberies, and they're like, okay, so now that we've failed so many times, now it's the time to get it right and be absolutely perfect. Yes. So they were, they burglarized places that were connected to them. So like a rival fraternity was one of the places that they burglarized in Ann Arbor. Uh, they were based in Chicago though. Uh, so they drove six hours for a burglary that didn't really go that well. They got like a few gold things and a couple of cigarette holders and came back wow uh and that's the catalyst that decided they wanted to kidnap um a child because they thought oh that's the thing to get the biggest headlines in the city of chicago is kidnap a child 
So you you can't even properly steal like a lamp, and you think you can steal a living, breathing, moving child that makes noise and moves around and will scream for help. Uh, apparently, they thought this would work. So their full plan was to kidnap a child, kill the child, ask for a ransom, and they left a very detailed note um, for the family that said okay, take it up to this specific train, and when the train gets between these two specific factories, throw the envelope full of cash as far east as you possibly can. And they were waiting underneath this, um, the elevated train in their car to catch the money and drive away. It sounds like an awful plan. You know, it does, but in their brain it worked. So uh, in May 1924... They found uh, Bobby, which was Richard Leb's 14-year-old cousin, and they offered him a ride home. At first, Bobby refused. He was like, well, I'm only like two blocks from home. I really don't need a ride, and it's May in Chicago. It's not like it's cold. So they kidnapped someone that one of them was related to. Yes, after driving around the south side for like two and a half hours, not finding any children. (sighs) Were you looking? (laughs) Right? Uh, So they wanted to kidnap a specifically rich child, so they actually stayed in the neighborhood that they grew up in and lived in. Well, okay, okay. So, I mean, I guess they understood, like, what the wealth value of the neighborhood is, but how are you going to gauge the wealth value of an individual child by just looking at them unless they look like they're from a 1920s cartoon about a rich old miser adopting an orphan. <laughs> well. Or, or uh, what's his name? Uh, Little Richie or something? The the one that Macaulay Culkin starred in that awful movie about. I have no idea. Remember, rock I live under. Yes, I forgot. <laughs> it's been too long. <laughs> but... They ended up coming across All right. um, yep. their, their nephew, or their, their cousin, and picked him up, and they were like, oh, let me take you around the block. I want to talk to you about that tennis match that you won yesterday. A 14-year-old kid, of course he's going to want to brag about something cool he did. So this kid um, gets in the car with them, and... They they start talking, and Leb is like, oh, do you know my friend Leopold? Um, and Bobby's like, no, you've never introduced me to this person in my life. And they end up driving across the state line into Indiana, bludgeoning the child to death with a chisel, a, the end of a chisel, not like the pointy end. Yeah, that wouldn't really be a bludgeon. No. So they hit this kid over the head four times. The kid is still conscious. They hit him a fifth time. The kid is still conscious. So they stuff a rag all the way down his throat and tape his mouth shut. And that's what kills him. Someone forgot arm day. Exactly. Well, and what- Also, by the way, just uh, Richie Rich is who I was thinking of. And I got there by Googling cartoon character Rich Little Kid. Oh, Richie Rich. Okay. Now I remember that. All right, so they are very incompetent at murdering a small child. Well, not a small child, they're 14, but very incompetent at murdering a child. Yes, and actually looking at a picture of Bobby, he is a small child. He is small. 
for a 14 year old. Um, and they're incompetent at this. And so they, after they kill the kid, they dump his body into like a kind of a ditch thing. And they go racing back to Chicago to drop the letter in the mailbox of, Hey, this like, give us the money and you'll get your kid back. Well, Leopold didn't look at his pockets because he dropped a pair of glasses at the crime scene. A couple days later, a woman found the boy and rang the police and they, the police found the glasses. The thing that was special about the glasses is that only a specific, it was a specific hinge that only three people in the entire city of Chicago. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Only three. Only three. Only three. So within 10 days of the child being killed, they were arrested. That, that, that really does sound like an episode of like CSI or Law and Order or God, even that kind of ass pull sounds like something out of Bones, too. Oh, where yeah. they find the glasses and they go to some random podunk optometrist and they're like, these are the rarest frames I've ever seen. There's only three people in the world that own these. Well, I think it had something to do with uh, Leopold's head size because the frames were actually very common. It was only the hinge. That made me laugh so hard, I literally just bucked my headphones. <laughs> Listeners, I'm just going to warn you, I'm dealing with something that is in my lungs. So laughs or coughs right now. I'm just dying. It's fine. Uh, we all die. We're all dying. So the trial, like every trial in the early 1900s, was labeled the crime of the century and the trial of the century. Move Gotta over. sell those newspapers. Exactly. And... Crime of the century. So they go into trial and the prosecution is asking for the death penalty, which is super common in Chicago, um, in Cook County. Crime of the century starring noodle arms and weird head. Exactly. Did you just Google their picture? No, I didn't. But we have someone who couldn't bludgeon a small child to death in more than five hits and even then couldn't do it. And a guy who has to have the rarest hinges on his glasses on Earth because his head's a weird shape. Well, uh, listeners, we are going to post a picture when this episode airs of these two people so you can see how correct Sean is. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so the prosecution was totally ready for a win. Both of the guys had admitted to uh, to murdering this child. And when they asked, were asked why, they said, well, we just wanted to experience the thrill. Jesus. Yeah. Go hunt an elk or something. <laughs> right? Uh, Wisconsin's not you, that you far live, away. You live in northern Illinois. You can drive about 10 miles and hunt some elk. Right? And in the 1920s, go tip a cow. Buffalo Grove isn't that far away. Yeah, and at that point, Buffalo Grove was cows. Exactly. So the families of these two men, of Leopold and Leb, were actually so rich that they could hire the most famous defense attorney in the country, Clarence Darrow. So that actually makes the trial even more interesting than the murder. 
Oh god. So so they have the best attorney for for this thing that they've more or less just admitted to. Yes. So for those of you who don't know, Clarence Darrow um, got his uh, fame from defending the Pullman Porter strike, which ended up winning. And that's a huge history that is beautiful that helps explain the unionization of black workers. So he defended the Pullman Porters and he has been defending the underdog at this point for like 30 years. So he used the trial as kind of like a social justice trial to fight the death penalty. Okay, that's not the bell I would have picked, but okay. You know, it's it kind of works. So they by the 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 two men had pleaded guilty before they even gotten a lawyer. So because of that, they actually had a little bit of a an advantage because they didn't have to have a trial by jury. Okay. And the defense attorney asked the judge to consider three factors. The fact that they were 18 and 19 years old, uh, their mental health status, and the fact that they pled guilty right away. Okay, so so all that considered, and these guys are amoral scum, and no one's going to argue that. They're trying to say, with these circumstances in mind, let's just lock them up for the other three quarters of their lives. Exactly. So... For two months, the men were the young men were reviewed by psychiatrists. Um, psychiatrists, the lead psychiatrist for the American Psychiat- Psychiatric Association, presented the findings in July and said that both of the boys had suffered trauma in their early years at the hands of their governesses. So, Leb at the hand of their governesses. Yep. Keep in mind, this is also Freud, so this is, like, the height of Freudian psychology. We don't know what's wrong with you, but it's because you want to have sex with your mother. (laughs) Basically. So, Leb um, had trauma because his governess was super strict, so he felt like he had to lie to her all the time. That's what they deemed his trauma was. He's been lying since he was a kid. (laughs) That just means you're a little shit. Exactly. Uh, And then... Leopold was raped by his governess. So, like, he has a legit reason. Okay, that's for real. And both of them, as a result of their trauma, according to the psychiatrists for the defense, both of them led active fantasy lives. Leb imagined himself a really... He imagined himself like a slave trying to prove himself to a sovereign, and he spent a lot of his time looking for his sovereign, which he found in Leb. That just brings up a whole complication in their relationship. Yeah, that's that's some weird... uh, You know, I'm not even going to get into that, because that's not the conversation I want to have. Nope. Not at all. Uh, (laughs) But the prosecution when they did a psych psychoanalyst a psychoanalysis i can't even speak on these people they contradicted everything the defense found so ultimately the judge didn't consider any of these factors at all um when he gave his sentencing he uh 
he said that uh, it was worse for them to spend 99 years in prison each for the crime they committed than it was for them to be executed. Well, yeah, no, I mean, if they're 18 and 19, that's a, that's a lot of uh, time that you're wasting on that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So Man. the quote from the Smithsonian article that a lot of this information is from, that kind of highlights the impact that this trial had on the city of Chicago. Um, it says at 9.30 in the morning of September 10th, 1924, the judge prepared to sentence the prisoners. The final day of the hearing was to be broadcast live over station WGN. And throughout the city, groups of Chicagoans clustered around radio sets to listen. The metropolis had paused in its morning bustle to hear the verdict. And I'm guessing no one was surprised. No one was surprised because it was a guilty plea. Um, but he gave no weight to the guilty plea. Uh, so usually that like would lessen the punishment. And that's actually kind of common today, too. If you plead guilty, you usually have a plea deal. Was not the hey, case. At least you were honest and we got some information out of you. Exactly. Um, the psychi psychiatric evidence was also not considered. The only thing that kept these guys from the death penalty was their age. I don't know which I would I would prefer if I was looking at life in prison at the age of 19. Well, they kind of, their quote-unquote life in prison was rather short. So, Leb was murdered at the Stateville prison in west of Chicago. Um, he was murdered in the shower. You know, I'm, I'm not surprised. He was 30 years old. Um, and then Le or Leopold had a, after 33 years in prison, he had a parole hearing. And they released him. And when uh, the judge asked, like, hey, just so you know, you're not, I hope you're not being released because you want the fame because dozens of reporters want to talk to you. And you want to be, he, like, the biggest names in television in the 1950s were, like, banging down his door to interview him. And he's like, no, I just want to be a, quote, humble little man. <laughs> so Who murdered a child. Exactly. Well, he was an accomplice. He technically didn't murder him. It was all Leb. Okay, and then and Leb's the one that got stabbed in the shower. Exactly. I imagine for acting like king of the castle in prison. There's no details on it, but I, I'll fill in the blanks. <laughs> um, so Leopold then moved, he fled to Puerto Rico and he got his degree in social work. He married an, a widow of an expatriate and he died at the age of 67 in 1971 from a diabetic induced heart attack. Wow. So he got to, to live out a good chunk of his life. Mm-hmm. He got to live about 12 years out of prison. I mean, that's that's not terrible when you were probably looking at spending, like, 60 in prison. Mm-hmm. Your whole life. So, that is yeah. the perfect crime as executed by Nathan Leopold and Richard Lebb. <laughs> Interspersed with me dying. <laughs> Oh, God. Incompetent thieves turn incompetent kidnappers turn incompetent murderers. Exactly. 
All right, so that's that's where they left off. One dead in the shower, one having lived a life in, at that point, what would have still been a tropical paradise. It's not where it is right now, where it's still recovering from a hurricane, and we won't discuss that too much. Mm-mm. I still got to imagine that lab just got stabbed for being annoying. Maybe the guy that... uh. The guy that killed him was in prison for grand larceny. Yeah. No, I, I gotta imagine he rubbed some people the wrong way. From the description that you've given, I do not imagine he had the sense to keep his head down in prison. So I think that's all we got for this one. I say as Kate is clutching her throat. <laughs> no, I, I get that every September. I get it. That's a lovely shade of tomato you are. It's awful. I just, like, can't. It's. It, I think I have a piece of dog hair in my throat or something. Oh, I've been there. All right. Yeah. All right, let's wrap up so Kay can die in peace. <laughs> right, Tune in you... next week to see if I survive. <laughs> Spoilers, I'm sure she will. Um, if you want to continue the discussion, you can email us at scofflawspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, follow us on Facebook at Scofflaws A History of Law and Disorder, either our main page or our community page, or both. Um, on Twitter. Oh, both. Both is good. Both is very good. We prefer both. And post on them. The community page is there so that you can scream at us. So scream at us. Just don't do it verbally. Do it through text, because I'm sensitive. <laughs> yep. No. Scream through text. <laughs> don't just don't alternate. Just don't do that verbally thing that people do because that's just irritating to read. <laughs> oh gosh, this is when you can tell Sean and I are from different ends of the generation because I think that's amusing. Because SpongeBob. Uh, um, follow us on Twitter at ScoffLawsCast, which I do need to get around to actually updating more. I need to get something. <laughs> to, I need to get something where I can just do it all at once. That's the there's problem. an app for that. Yeah, the problem is that my phone is always running out of memory. But mm. hopefully for Christmas I'll be getting a new phone, so we'll see how that goes. Woot woot. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's about it. Um, Kate, I don't know if you listened to the last episode, but I put an open call out. If either... The last episode was about real-life superheroes. Oh, goodness. And I put an open call out that if any real-life superhero wants to be interviewed on our show to email us, and I'm still waiting for that to happen. Yeah, if you don't feel like you can email us, you can reach out on all of our social medias. We we will maintain your secret identity. Yes. And part of being interviewed is to be able to see one of our dogs in the video. <laughs> yep. Free dog uh, free dog view with purchase. Exactly. Well, support. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Speaking of, support us on our Patreon if it ever comes up. Yeah, no, nope, I still need to to put the polish on that okay um also if you uh if you play video games or like watching other people play video games i'm now streaming on saturdays uh you can find me on twitch under the name sean of the fool and if you get lucky and if you ask enough i may come and fail at one of those video games <laughs> I, I still have la noir sitting in my my game drawer and I'm terrible at that game because I have a hard enough time reading faces in real life. That's hard to read when people are lying to me in digital format. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. 
So since uh, since we stuck with the perfect crime in Chicago, I pulled up a, a dumb law for Illinois. Oh, cool. It's not, it's not really a dumb law, more of a weird exception. Uh, those under 21 can drink legally, but they must be enrolled in a culinary program to do so. Ah, yeah. I actually uh, dated a guy who was in a culinary program and explained that to me. There we go. So now we know it's a verified uh, verified law. Also, that... in the state of Wisconsin, if you're under 21, you can drink with a parent. <laughs> that that reminds me. Um, before we, we completely wrap up, there was uh, a while ago a Superman comic book cover that was sort of a wholesome sort of comic. It was it was Clark Kent and uh, Pa Kent. Like standing on their picket fence with the barn and the the farmhouse in the background, and they're just drinking a beer like, like good old boys, down on the farm. And people raised umbrage about Superman drinking a beer, so they changed it to like cola or something. America, America can't have this this nice little father son moment as two adults. We'll see you next time, friends. Yeah, thank you. This has been uh, Scott Ball's History of Law and Disorder. My name is Sean. This has been Kate. Say bye, Kate. Bye, Kate. over uh stanley it was clever and then i forgot um yeah, I'm all right Googling. so that joke just died on the ground it did just edit that one out <laughs> all right so crime of the century